Good morning to all of you. It's great to see you here this Sunday morning. We are going to conclude our series in the book of Acts this morning. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we'll begin at verse 16. But before we begin, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider all that you've done in order to save us, as we consider your great power, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to be encouraged, to be challenged, to live in light of what we've learned, to live in light of who we are before you because of what you've done. Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself, not only in our eyes, but in the eyes of the world. Help us to see just truly how great you are, how great and how powerful the name of Jesus is. May we come to understand how that affects us on a daily basis. And may we proclaim that to the world, to the people around us, as we are convinced of the fact that Christ has authority over all. So, Father, we pray that you would magnify yourself this day, this morning, as we study your word. And it's your sons that we pray. Amen. When we compare the ancient kingdoms and empires, one of the common ideas they all shared was this idea of establishing superiority. Our kingdom reigns. Our empire is supreme because we are all powerful. Many a king, many an emperor was bent on world domination because it would tangibly demonstrate their nation's superiority over the rest of the other nations. Though the nations today do not still overtly seek to take over the world as they did before, there are still vestiges of this attitude. For example, when the nations get together for the Olympics, whether it be summer or, fall or winter, most observers only care about the medal count of their country. Can we outmedal the other nations? Can we get more gold medals than our rivals to prove once again that we reign supreme? This more public fight for superiority may be one that has faded away, but a fight that has never truly faded away is the fight for religious authority. Earlier in our study of the book of Acts, we saw that the conflict between the religious leaders of Israel and the church was over salvation. Is salvation through the Jews or is it through Jesus? Who has God's backing, the temple or the church? We learn then that God no longer works through Israel directly in order to bring salvation to the world, but has made it clear that salvation can only come through his son, Jesus Christ. But if the church is going to fulfill its mission in Acts 1.8, then the church and the gospel message it proclaims must also demonstrate themselves authoritative over the world to show that salvation truly is found in no other name than Jesus' name. That God has no rivals, and he alone gets to set the terms of salvation. This morning, 
we will see how God demonstrates this authority through his servant Paul in the city of Athens. God takes the fight directly to the World Center for Academia and Philosophy and shows them his great power, his superiority. And as we study this passage this morning, we'll see two scenes from Paul's witness in Athens that instructs us in our gospel witness. Two scenes from Paul's witness in Athens that instructs us in our gospel witness. The first scene from Paul's witness in Athens that instructs us in our gospel witness is Paul's bold witness in Athens. Paul's bold witness in Athens. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Earlier in chapter 17, Paul is journeying through Thessalonica and Berea, and though he had had much success in preaching the gospel in those cities, some jealous Jews in Thessalonica began pursuing Paul, persecuting Paul, trying to cause trouble wherever he went in order to stop the spread of the gospel. But instead of dousing the gospel out, these jealous Jews acted like water on pepper. They thought they could wash away the gospel, wash away its effectiveness. But by trying to wash away the gospel with their opposition, they only caused the gospel to spread further as it kept on pushing Paul further out into other cities. And the gospel spread with it, with him. Every city that he went to, the gospel continued to be proclaimed. And so Paul's latest move pushes him to Athens, where he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him once they finished instructing the Bereans. Athens was the cradle for democracy in the world, but it no longer had the power it once did when Greece was the dominant power. But because of its importance and its influence, the Romans allowed for Athens to continue to function as an independent city, a free and allied city within their empire. And due to the freedom given from the Romans, Athens, it continued to be a city where there was a high value placed on knowledge by the philosophical schools and the worship of idols. Now, as Paul was moving about the city, he notices how the city is full of idols. And Luke says that Paul was provoked within him as he was observing these idols. Now, another way that provoked can be translated is to be irritated or provoked to wrath. Paul was angry as he saw the city full of, or as one commentator suggests, as a possible translation, submerged in its idols. Paul sees the city submerged in its idols, and he is angry. And so, verse 17, Paul did not just begin preaching the gospel in the synagogue as was his normal custom, but he also went into the marketplace every day in order to reason with the Greeks who were there. Now, some of you are probably thinking, the marketplace? Why would you go to the marketplace in order to share the gospel? I've been to Safeway. I've been to Whole Foods. I've been to Sprouts. You don't, you don't go there to share the gospel. Why did he go to the marketplace? Well, in Greco-Roman times, the marketplace functioned as the hub for all urban life. You didn't just buy or trade goods at the marketplace. You would also converse with others there as well. You would exchange ideas. And the fact that Athens was the home for many schools of philosophy reveals how many of these philosophies were spread. Not everyone would have gone to the schools, but they would have gone to the marketplace. And they would have heard these new philosophies as they were exchanged. So Paul, he preaches Christ boldly to both Jew and Gentile for quite a period of time. 
And while some certainly received his message well, there were others who wanted to challenge Paul. Verse 18. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Here, we are presented with two different philosophical schools who could not be farther apart in what they taught. They were not only... They were not the only philosophical schools in Greece, but they were the two dominant philosophies. The Epicureans were known for their pursuit of happiness and contentment through detachment from social competition and the denial of divine interference in human affairs, especially the threat of wrath for failure to act. Since they believed there was no afterlife, there was no reason to fear the wrath of the gods. Though the Epicureans believed in the existence of many gods, they believed that the gods took no interest in the events of everyday life. And this belief led them to be very critical of the idea that the gods needed temples or people to supply their needs. But it also made them practical atheists. On the other hand, the Stoics were pantheists. They believed that everything was a part of God, or as they called him, the Logos. Through logic and discipline, they sought to live in harmony with the natural order so that they could become one with the Logos. And as some of these philosophers spoke with Paul, there were some saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? This term, idle babbler, is a Greek expression that translates to seed picker. And the idea, the image that it evokes is that Paul is like a bird, indiscriminately picking at seeds of the ground here and there. And these philosophers, they're calling Paul an idle babbler. And in doing so, they're accusing Paul of being a re religious charlatan, someone who picks up philosophical and religious teachings and repackaging it in a new teaching in order to gain profit. And though it will be clear to them soon that Paul is not a false teacher trying to turn a prophet through his teaching, it is worth noting that though both of these schools, both of these philosophical schools were at odds with each other, some of their number were united in their rejection of Christianity. While there were some who were not so negative in their reactions to Paul, believing, they believed that Paul was a proclaimer of strange deities. And it's clear that what Paul's preaching didn't make sense to the people who lived in Athens. And part of the reason why Paul's message was so strange to the Athenians was because Paul was preaching Christ and the resurrection. Even in Jewish thought, there was no conception of a divine Messiah who would come down to earth to become a man and die, then rise again. And the concept of resurrection was so foreign to the Jews and to the Gentiles that even the Greeks, who believed many things, thought that the gospel of Jesus was strange. Regardless of what the Greeks or Jews thought, we know that Jesus' incarnation, his death, and his resurrection were all necessary in order to bring salvation to all who will believe. Without Jesus' incarnation, without his virgin birth, Jesus never would been able to die on the cross for the sins of everyone who believes in him. In order to be a mediator between God and man, the one who would bring peace would have to bring both parties together, being both God and man. But Jesus, he was. 
God and man. He was a physical man, being born of Mary. But he was also God, existing before time began. And God caused him to be miraculously born through Mary. Jesus, he laid aside his rights to be up in heaven. He took on flesh. He stepped into his creation so that he could be that mediator, so that he could bring peace between God and man. Though death was no stranger to the Greco-Roman gods, Jesus actually had to die. It wasn't a result of war. It wasn't a result of him trying to be a hero. As we know from Isaiah 53, it is by his death, it is by his wounds that we are healed. It is by his death that Jesus fulfills the law. The only way for sin to be covered in the Old Testament law was for a perfect lamb to be sacrificed. Jesus is the ultimate Passover sacrifice because he lived in complete obedience to the law of Moses. And as a result of his perfect obedience, he was the spotless lamb who could die for sins. Jesus' death was absolutely necessary for the forgiveness of sins to be available to those who believe because without it, the sin debt is not covered. Not only did Jesus have to die, he also had to rise from the dead. And this is what bothered the people the most. Resurrection from the dead, in their minds, was not something to be sought. For the Epicureans, death was simply the end. When you die, you die. You, dis- you disintegrate into nothing, and that's it. There's no afterlife, so death is nothing to fear. For the Stoics, death was a good thing. It allowed for a person to return to the Logos. You don't really die because you simply become one with the Logos. Jesus, he needed to rise from the dead so that the curse of sin, death, could be beaten. If Jesus stayed in the ground, there would have been no differentiation between him or his death and the death of other righteous men. He would have just been another righteous person who was swallowed up by the grave. But Jesus, Jesus was the Holy One spoken of by David in Psalm 1610. He was the Holy One whom God would not allow to see corruption. He was the Holy One who would not die like other men died. God raised his son from the dead to show that while Jesus laid down his life as a ransom for many, Jesus could not stay dead Forever, because God, who is life, cannot be stopped by death. Jesus rose from the grave to show that his death, his sacrifice, has been accepted by God. And it is the last sacrifice that will ever be needed for the forgiveness of sin. This is why in Hebrews 10, 12 to 14, the author of Hebrews writes, But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The core teaching about Jesus, being the Son of God, who came down to earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, and then to rise again, was what confounded and perplexed the philosophical elites in Athens. While some dismissed it out of hand, Paul's bold gospel preaching caught enough attention that the council of Athens, the chief court that met at the Areopagus or Mars Hill, was interested in hearing Paul's teaching. 
The Areopagus could be considered a city council, but their sphere of influence was not just civic, but also philosophical and religious. And for this reason, Paul's teaching, which they described as strange strange things to our ears, is investigated. Now, Luke, he provides us with a parenthetical statement in verse 21 explaining that the Athenians and the strangers who visited Athens, they used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And this is keen insight from Luke as to how the city of Athens functioned. The intellectual Athenians loved hearing new teachings. They loved hearing new philosophies. They always wanted to learn more. And this curiosity is what allows for Paul to share the gospel at the center of Greco-Roman thought of the day. And he will not hesitate to share the gospel and defend it to those who are at the Areopagus. Paul's bold gospel witness teaches us a few lessons. If we as the church and individuals in the church are to be witnesses of the saving power of Jesus' name to the world, we ought to care about the glory of God. Paul was provoked when he saw the city full of idols in Athens because he knew that every single idol that was in that city was a false god that took people away from the one true God. If we are convinced that God is the one true God and that he has sent Jesus to save us because of his love for us, then God's glory and his honor ought to be of utmost importance to us because of our love for him. We love him and others by extension because he first loved us. Therefore, we must defend God's glory and God's honor from those who would try and deceive others by saying that God, the God of the Bible either isn't real or is not the only God out there. There is salvation in no other name. So God must be seen as holy. He must be seen as the God who can save, as the only God who can save. And therefore, we ought to lovingly teach those who have wrong ideas about God, whether they are professing believers or unbelievers, what the right view of God is. If they repent of their wrong view of God, that is great. Hallelujah. Praise God. But if they don't, we continue to pray for them, that God would open their eyes and help them repent of their wrong views about Him, that they would repent believe upon Christ and have their sins forgiven. If salvation is found in no other name and we care about the souls of the people who do not believe in Jesus, how can we sit back and be fearful of preaching the gospel to them? Our love for them and our passion for God and for his glory should drive us to evangelize. That should be our fuel We don't necessarily evangelize just because we want our loved ones and everyone who will listen to come to faith. That certainly is important, but that's not the only reason why we ought to evangelize. We ought to be motivated to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel to others because we want God to be glorified. We want him to receive all the honor, all the glory, all the praise, all the thanks that he deserves because he graciously saved us, because he intervened in human history, to make a way for us to be forgiven. And because of that, God deserves nothing less than worship forevermore. This leads us to our second scene 
from Paul's witness in Athens. That instructs us in our gospel witness, and that is Paul's strong defense at the Areopagus. Paul's strong defense at the Areopagus, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul begins his address to the Areopagus by observing that they are very religious. That they're religious in all respects because there's an altar there that was dedicated to an unknown God amongst their other objects of worship. The Athenians, they had a reputation of being polytheists. They were fearful of forgetting or neglecting the worship of a God since there were so many gods. And as a means of insurance, there were multiple authors, altars in Greece that were dedicated to an unknown God because they wanted to make sure that they covered all the gods that needed worship. Now, Paul, he tells the council at Areopagus, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. Though some of the philosophers thought that Paul was an idle babbler, a religious charlatan who gathered bits and pieces of philosophy and religion and spoke ignorantly about them, Paul essentially says to the philosophers, I am not ignorant because I know the one I worship. I know the one who ought to be worshiped. Since you are ignorant about who you worship, let me tell you about him. So in verses 24 to 31, Paul masterfully deals with the objections of the Epicureans and the Stoics, while at the same time demonstrating that Christ is superior. In verse 24, Paul reads, and Paul says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. This statement would have been an attack against the Epicureans because the Epicureans believed that matter was eternal. Since the gods exist but were distant and did not participate in the world, the idea that God would make the world and all that is in it would have been rejected. Why would God care? But Paul says no. He does care. He made everything. It would also be seen as an attack against the Stoics because the Stoics believed that all things were a part of God, who was known as the Logos. And so if all things were considered a part of God, then it would make no sense for God to make what already belonged to himself. But because God made everything, because he is Lord of all, of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. While God chose to allow for his presence to be in the Jewish temple, he did not dwell there like the Greco-Roman gods. He would meet with the people there, but it is not like he needed the temple in order to visit his people. As the God and Lord of everything, God did not need a temple made with hands in order to visit his people. Nor Does God need to be served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things? The Stoics would have been surprised by a statement that God was not served by human hands because they believed that everything was a part of God. And as a result, it'd be necessary to serve the Logos, to care for the Logos. We're one with the Logos. 
The idea that Yahweh would not need anyone to serve him as if he needed anything from them would have been counter to that stoic thought. I mean, the reason why all those altars existed throughout Greece, including those altars to an unknown God, was because the Greeks were afraid that if they failed to serve the gods, if they failed to provide for the needs of the gods, the gods would get angry with them and bring retribution upon them. That's not so with Yahweh. While God rightly deserves our worship and does and will punish those for failure to worship him, that punishment is not a result of them forgetting to feed him or to give him something to drink. God's punishment for lack of worship is due to a lack of thankfulness and acknowledgement of him as the one true God. It is for the failure to believe in Christ and repent of one's sins. Paul also says, that God himself gives people everything that they have, life, breath, and all things. Everything that we have is given to us by God. He doesn't need for us to give him anything back because he has everything. He owns everything. Instead, God is the one who personally gives people all that they need. Not only are needs provided for by God, but the very existence is provided for by God as he supplies the very breath that we breathe. And this would have run counter to the Epicureans because they, though they believed in many gods, they said the gods don't take a part in our daily lives. They have a hands-off approach when it comes to the relationship with humanity. But Paul tells them, no, that's not how God is. That's not how God is. He is personally involved with, his, with the people that he created. He cares about their lives. He cares about their deaths. And he is very near and so essentially what Paul says to the Epicureans is, Epicureans, how can you claim to have any sort of authority at all when you don't even know where you come from? God's personal interest in humans is due to the fact that he created mankind. And Paul explains that God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the times they would live and where they would live. You see, the Greeks, they all believed that they were superior to other races whom they called barbarians since they were not as educated or as advanced as they were. But Paul destroys that line of thinking as he points out that no human being has any claim of racial superiority over others because all of the nations came from one man. All the humans in the world descend from Adam. As we know from Genesis 1, 28 to 29, God's intention for mankind in creation was to fill the entire earth. We're not supposed to stay in one place. We're supposed to spread out throughout the entire earth. We're to subdue it and inhabit it. While mankind filled the earth and saw how everything was made for them to survive, it should have led them to seek God, to grope for him so that they might possibly find him. Everything that God did in creation was to demonstrate that there had to be a divine being who made all of these things. It's supposed to point to the fact that there was a creator. And though it may appear that he is far away because only a big God could make everything that we see, Paul points out that God is not far from us. Unlike what the Epicureans believe, God is not far off. He is near. He can be found. And verses 28 to 29 are interesting because Paul, he quotes Greek poets 
in order to demonstrate biblical truth. He uses their own words, their own teachings against them to show that their wisdom speaks out against their teachings. That their very words demonstrate that they are actually ignorant of how the world works. That they have no idea what they're saying. Their own words condemn them. The idea that we live and move and have our being in God is true about our God. But when Paul quotes this, he's, take, he's quoting from a Greek poet who writes about Zeus. Paul says, you might have thought that this was true about Zeus. But what I'm telling you is that Yahweh is better than all the other gods. Because not only does he create us, not only does he provide for us, not only do we have our life in him, Yahweh has a personal interest in us because he made us. In the sense that God is the creator of every human being. He is our father and we are all his children. And as such, we ought not to think of God as being made of gold, silver, or stone. We ought not to think that God looks like or acts like anything the human mind has come up with through our imagination. If we are his children made in his image, then God should have a similar nature to ours. If we are personal beings, able to think, feel, and sympathize with one another, why wouldn't God do the same? Why would he be indifferent to his creation? Why would God be a statue made of precious metals, stone or wood? The idea that God is one with everything and everything is a part of him or that there are multiple gods who live in the universe represented by statues is foolish. If we are children of God, then there must be a sense in which we are like him. And if that is true, then there can be only one true God. His character must be righteous and personal. On all of this, it points to the fact that Yahweh alone is God, not any of the Greco-Roman gods. And though the Greek people were ignorant of who God was, Paul makes it clear that God, he's overlooked the times of ignorance. He didn't judge those who sinned against him according to what they deserved immediately. Now, this does not mean that God does not judge unbelievers at all before Christ died on the cross. Unbelievers before Christ's death on the cross were judged according to what Paul said in Romans 1. They're judged according to what they know about God. They are judged according to their lack of thankfulness to God. They are judged according to their violation of morality, their violation of their consciences. But now that God has revealed the gospel of his salvation through Jesus Christ, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The church understands that all the nations needs to hear the gospel because God has declared through Christ that all the nations, that all the peoples everywhere should repent of their sins. God the Father alone knows when the time period of mercy, which he keeps open so that all may believe, will be over. He alone knows when the time of judgment will come. When it is time for justice to be satisfied, God will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed. We know that this man through whom God will execute justice is Jesus Christ because Paul says that the proof God gives of the justice 
that is to come is found in the person whom God raised from the dead. So how do we know that Jesus has every right to judge the, the, the nations in justice? It's because God has appointed him, anointed him above all others to be his instrument of judgment through resurrection. In Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus has secured salvation for all who believe. And as he does so, he also takes his rightful place as the Davidic king who will reign forever, ruling in perfect justice. God raises no other man from the dead in the same way that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Everyone else who died and was raised from the dead eventually died again. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he remained alive. He did not and will not die again. He reigns as God forever and ever. And this is the proof that is needed to understand that people everywhere must repent. Though Paul does not make explicit scripture references in his gospel defense to the Athenians, he was masterful as he uses these scriptural principles in conjunction with Athenian philosophy in order to show the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we see here is not necessarily a how-to guide for evangelism because Paul was specifically addressing the worldview of the Athenians. We see how Paul uses their worldview and shows them how the gospel can not only defend itself against them, but it can completely discredit them, completely disarm them, show that they are inadequate, that they are ignorant of the truth of how the world works. So Paul's words were not the words of an idle babbler, but they are the words from a holy God who reigns and rules through his resurrected son, Jesus Christ. Verses 32-34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Upon hearing Paul's conclusion about the resurrected Jesus, some began to sneer, but others wanted to hear more. And this reminds us that even if we are able to soundly defend the gospel against those who have objections against it, it does not guarantee that those who hear the gospel will come to saving faith. For salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating the hearts of those who do not believe so that they might believe in Jesus Christ and turn from their sins. This, of course, is not a problem to us because we understand that God alone works in the hearts of men to, to be saved in his timing, not ours. And therefore, we should not discourage or feel like we have to keep on learning or come up with new methods to share the gospel if people are not responding to our gospel message because the results are not up to us. God's not asking for results. He's asking for faithfulness. And that's not to say that evangelism training is unimportant. We all need to learn how to share the gospel and how to share our faith better because some people may be able to teach us how to be more concise or how to word things more carefully, more accurately. But if you know how to share the gospel and you're looking for more methods or formulas to share the gospel because you're not getting results, remember 
the results aren't up to you. Right? That is up to God. You plant the seed. God's the one who causes the growth. You don't need new methods or gimmicks in order to evangelize. You just need to be faithful. Paul, he leaves their midst, and though some of them sneered at him, many others believed, among them being Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. God demonstrates Jesus' authority over the world in Paul's defense of the gospel. Not only is Paul able to show the superiority over the, of the gospel over Epicureanism and Stoicism, but God saves for himself people who were at Areopagus. They heard Paul's defense and they believed, demonstrating that God has power, that Jesus has power and authority in the world's center for religion and philosophy. As we reflect on this second scene from Paul's witness in Athens, something that we must recognize is how well Paul understood Athenian culture. Paul knew the scriptures, and he naturally knew Jewish culture because he was raised a Pharisee. But he also understood the context of the people that he was sent to by God, which is why he was able to preach to them and address both schools of philosophy at once. Granted, that requires an immense level of intelligence, skill, and giftedness to be able to do that on the fly. But God's not asking us to be like Paul in this regard. What Paul's defense of the gospel challenges us with is that we need to know the culture that we live in. Not just so that we can evangelize to the people who are in the culture, but also so that we can defend the truth of the gospel from the culture's desire to make the gospel submit to it. If we fail to understand how the culture works, how people think, what they believe and why they believe it, what will be said in our gospel witness as we speak ignorantly about them? They'll say, Christians are anti-intellectual. Christians are ignorant. Christians have no credibility. Why would anyone want to have a relationship with God if they feel like they can have everything they want and then some from the culture? We must understand the culture so that we can glorify God in our witness. We must show the people that Jesus truly does have authority over them. That he does have authority over the world, over their philosophies. That their philosophies don't even hold a candle to him. Additionally, understanding the culture is helpful for the church so that we can minister to the needs of the church and protect it from false doctrine, whether it is intentionally or unintentionally introduced into the church. We all have ministry philosophies. We all have an idea of how church ought to be run how doctrine should be taught, if it should be taught at all. But where did you get those ideas from? Where did you get those ideas from? Did you get it from the Bible? Or have you allowed for the culture's worldview to unintentionally influence your biblical worldview? Have you let the world into the church through the back door? I'm not saying that this is necessarily a problem that's currently plaguing our congregation. It could be, but I'm not saying that. If we are not careful, if we fail to understand the roots of our influences, we may find ourselves robbing the church of her strength and influence rather than building it 
and shoring it up. We are in the world, but we are not to be of it. We must be mindful of what is in the world to make sure that it doesn't come in and destroy us from within through the back door. Until Jesus comes again, we will never see an end to the fight for superiority and authority in the world. It shows up in innocent competitions, and it shows up on the international stage. Everyone is fighting for supremacy, for authority, because they believe power will make them relevant in the world. Jesus shows through his death and his resurrection and through the witness of his church that he is already one, that he already has all the power, all the authority. And this morning we've studied through two scenes from Paul's witness in Athens that instructs us in our gospel witness. Paul's bold witness in Athens and Paul's strong defense at the Areopagus. We were reminded that as Christians... We have to be people who care about the glory of God, the honor of our God. That the glory and honor of God is what motivates us. It's what drives us to be witnesses of the gospel to the world. We're also challenged with the need to understand and engage with the culture. God is one. And we must remember that the world and everything in it submits to God, not the other way around. Brothers and sisters, if we as a church understand why we are here and how God has graciously saved us to be his witnesses in the world, then we must engage with the world around us. We must demonstrate that we as a church, we as individuals who make up the church, are all about our Lord Jesus Christ in every facet in our lives. We can say it. But unless we live it out, it means nothing. If we truly believe that the church is all about Jesus, if we truly believe that Jesus is everything to us, then we have to live as if that actually means something in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, as we wrap up our series studying the book of Acts, studying the highlights of the book of Acts, And we see the authority that you have, the authority that your son has. May we be motivated by that. May we be encouraged by that. May we strive to live our lives so that people can see the greatness of Christ. That the forgiveness of sins is possible because of his death and his resurrection. We pray that if there are any here who this morning do not believe in your son, have not repented of their sins, that they might be convinced of the great trouble that they're in because of their sin. That because of their sin, they have rightly earned for themselves divine wrath for eternity. But may they also see that, Lord, you are not willing for them to perish. That you are patient with them. That you do not wish for them to experience that wrath. Lord, may they be convinced of that. May they see that. May they desire to turn from their sins and turn to you and believe upon Christ and be saved. For those of us here who are believers, help us to be encouraged. Help us to be challenged. Help us to be motivated to live out the gospel in our lives. To truly be all about Jesus in everything that we do. Lord, we confess that it is difficult 
to be all about Jesus in our thoughts and our attitudes as we interact with family, as we interact with friends, as we interact with coworkers. It's often difficult to be all about Jesus in those times. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to be all about Jesus so that even in these small aspects of our lives, we demonstrate that Jesus has authority not, over, not only over the world but our lives as well so that people can see that Jesus truly does make a difference in a life, that he can truly save and he can save us from our sins. Father, may you be glorified. May you be honored as we live our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen.